everybody. Thanks for joining us today. <clears throat> we have one of our panelists, unfortunately, had to drop because of an emergency. That's the bad news. The good news is you get me to moderate, which I don't think I've ever done. So bear with me. I'm really shy in front of crowds. Uh, have a tendency to run out of things to talk about. So I want to encourage everyone to participate. Um, we're going to be very office leaning today. It is the Capital Markets Review, but there's a word office up there, not to, uh, you know, avoid our friends and in the industrial business or uh, occupiers of retail space, but we're going to focus on office. We've got three great speakers that I'm going to introduce right now. So let's keep it as interactive as we can. Sorry we lost the panelists. Thank you for putting up with me for 45 minutes. And in no particular order, let me start uh, introducing our panelists to come up. Jim, why don't you join us first? Jim co-leads uh, Newmark's Capital Markets Office team in Chicago with one of his partners is here today, Mr. Harwood, and Derek Fall, who couldn't join us today. He's on a domestic trip, saving his marriage, I think. Most brokers have to have one of those a quarter. Um, but he's an expert in uh, both dispositions and acquisitions throughout the Midwest. He's been in the business 30 years. Uh, he started at Money, M-O-N-Y, Money, if you, those of you remember Mutual of New York. Uh, for a brief moment, we were partners at CBRE, I recall, years ago. Uh, one thing that Jim taught me years ago was never buy a, a brand new car. Wait a year, then buy it used. I don't know if you still do it to this day, but that first buyer drives off the lot and the car depreciates and he saved me a lot of money over the years. Um, he's also a great family guy. He's from, he's a badger. Although he did, he is a cooler as well, right? He went to Georgia State, got the master's degree in real estate, uh, but an all-around expert. And, uh, he's also a quite a... A Kaido expert, so don't get him mad. Uh, next, please, Alyssa Adler. Could you join us next? Um, Alyssa, I've known for quite a while as well. She has was a client in her early days at MetLife and maybe even Equity. Um, but she was also uh, saved me on a couple of deals because she had started her own firm called Circle Realty Advisors and did uh, asset management and brokerage throughout Chicago and other markets and uh, helped save me on a couple of the jobs that uh, I, I, we had some last minute things we needed done and she was right there to help. So I always appreciate what you do. She's headed to the Indy 500 this weekend, so keep an eye out for you. You'll be able to see her turn two or three. Where are you? Uh, the last term before the, the fourth finish line, fourth term. Before the home stretch. So keep an eye out, you'll, you'll see her amongst those 150,000 people. She'll have the, uh, you know, the hat on. But uh, a little <laughs> has done over a billion dollars in deals over her career and uh, it's been uh, 30 years now in the business. So welcome Alyssa Adler from Colliers. Thank you. And uh, our anchor, Heidi Smithson, who's a co-director of uh, commercial real estate lending here in Chicago for First Midwest Bank and now a division of Old National Bank. Uh, that marriage occurred this summer. So uh, two great uh, brands coming together in the banking world. Um, Heidi's a Hawkeye. I am a Hawkeye. Two badges and a Hawkeye with an Illini moderating. I wonder what's going to happen today, given the recent basketball. Um, but Heidi just returned from Las Vegas. So I'm going to go easy on her today, although she's going to be covering the debt markets. Uh, she learned a lot in Las Vegas. I'm sure she'll be willing to share all those stories today with all of you. Um, but she's a, uh, on the board of directors for North Suburban Division of Special or Junior Achievement. Uh, you're on the first Midwest Bank Charitable Foundation. So, again, another experienced veteran uh, with me, you know, over 125 years of mm -hmm. capital markets experience up here. So hopefully we'll all learn something today. But uh, as, anyway, how about a round of applause for our speakers? 
And I'm gonna I'm gonna carry a microphone in my pocket, so I'm gonna and I'm not gonna sit up here. I'm gonna wander around. I'm not trying to be Phil Donahue, but um, I'd like the speakers to be able to react with me. So um, Phil Donahue, it looks like yeah. this guy. Um, but why don't we flip to the next slide? And um, I think a lot of you have seen this. Anybody seen the Castle Barometer? A lot of people are addicted to this, but. Castle system started, you know, with the baseline pre-COVID. They're the guys who do the security swipes at the entranceway to your office space, and then they do many other great things in the service industry. But they keep this barometer uh, since COVID started, and you can, I'm not going to go through every dip valley, but you can see the tremendous impact that, we've, that, that COVID has had on office and all the subsequent things that have been going on in the world. And a lot of you don't need to hear this. That's our bread and butter, we know. Um, but what we thought was interesting and where we kick off is that we're just now seeing in early April, you know, a month and a half ago, that, that big tech is finally coming back. Google's back in the office. April, in April 11th, Apple came back. And I wanted to ask our friends like Martin Clark and Northern Trust, did you have an official date that compared to that? Mike Thomas or Jason at Allstate? Oh, wait, you don't have a date yet either. I know that. Generally April? Anybody else have any extreme in that regard or know of any clients? Okay. Well, right now we're in the post-pandemic peak occupancy first week of April, according to the Castle barometer, at 43%. And what's kind of strange, and it'll kind of lead into this, is that it's kind of flattening out a little bit. So what's going on in the other half of the office market, I guess? So let's, uh, let's get going. Um, so I'm going to ask Alyssa, uh, well, first of all, I want to thank all three speakers for cooperating on this slide deck. You know, all their companies have data. They look at it in different, different perspectives, different timing. So we all had to come together and kind of come to a baseline. So you might see a number that doesn't jive with the one you read from the other competitor's number, but there's timing issues and everything's fine. So don't worry about it. Let's go to Alyssa first. And I'm going to ask her to just not to read the bullets, but just ask our panelists to hit on all these different trends in the market, office rents, leasing, absorption, vacancy, what's going on, what was going on before, what's happening now, and what are some things we should look at? Alyssa, how about you anchor that? All right, I'm just going to hit on a few high points. Nobody wants me to read all these bullets to them. But uh, the first one is really uh, about vacancy and the difference between the CBD vacancy and the suburban vacancy. And CBD vacancy, according to our reports, uh, hit a record high of 19.7%. While the suburban vacancy is actually getting getting better and having some absorption. And really what I think is happening there is uh, partly what you're talking about with the return to work. Uh, the suburbanites are much more likely right now to be returning to work and I think feel more comfortable doing that. Part of what's happening, I believe, in the city is that, you know, it's more than just COVID and the pandemic that's affecting uh, people coming back. It's also, you know, things that are happening in the city of Chicago, people being still nervous about commuting from the suburbs on metro trains. So I think this is a trend that, you know, we're going to be watching closely and, and hopefully that will start to turn itself around. Um, the other thing that I think is important to note on this uh, slide is that the, and, and this is where our companies differed a little bit because we just track things um, Timing-wise, a little bit differently, but Collier's is showing that uh, in the first quarter of this year that we had 1.1 million square feet of negative net absorption in the CBD, and two-thirds of that is in uh, Class B space, and 80% is makes up the negative absorption between Class B and Class C. However, you know, in the um, 
in the suburbs, you are, you're seeing the, the, the exact opposite. So I think, again, it's sort of an interesting dichotomy between the two things. Um, the next slide, and I'm trying to read this, the spread between um, direct and sublease rents are approaching $15 in the CBD. So that seems on its surface to be a very big number, and you think, well, why wouldn't every tenant then just take sublease space? And what I think we have to keep in mind, and, and you and I may or may not agree on this, but I see subway space sort of flattening out at this point. I think we kind of hit this peak. There were a lot of companies that were putting space on the market kind of to test the market, see what was going to happen. They've now either started to renegotiate with their landlords or they've decided that, you know, they're going to just pull that subway space off the market. And, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, but because the concession packages for new space are so attractive, I think there is, hasn't been as much of the tenancy flocking to the sublease space as you would imagine, given that spread in the rents. Just I'll jump in. We, yeah. we do agree with the sublease place, sublease space flattening out. Um, we've seen that both suburban and downtown. We have instances where some companies put it on and decided to take it off. They weren't really sure what they were going to do. Um, and the, the you know, commentary, and we'll talk about this later, is how much it spiked, the subway space spiked, both suburban downtown during this pandemic compared to maybe some of the other markets in the Midwest. So we'll, we'll hit on that. But it's definitely, it's stabilized that way. And then vacancy um, in the suburban markets very widely um, from 18, almost 19% in O'Hare to 35% in Schaumburg. So, um, you know, that's, uh, not every submarket, both suburban or city, is created equal. Uh, and then lastly, I just want to note the last bullet point. So what I thought was interesting when I looked at our data was that the tenancy size, so in 2022, the average to date, and I know it's only been one quarter, but it's about 65,000 square feet. If you go back to 2019, before COVID, leases were ranging starting at 70, and going up to 800,000 square feet. So that's, that's a big difference in the size of tenants that are looking. But the flip side of that is that there's more tenant activity now. So pre-COVID, there were 107 tenants in the market looking for about 6 million square feet. Today, there's 140 tenants in the market looking for about almost 8 million square feet. So there's more activity, but the question becomes, if, if that activity is in smaller spaces, you know, what does that say about how long it's going to take us to absorb all this vacancy? So <clears throat> do we see like a, uh, and maybe we're going to talk about this later, do we see the tale of two cities then, urban versus suburban, or is it dramatically different? I mean, I think that last bullet is significant because I've seen Collier's lists. I mean, the, the, the pre-COVID numbers, I mean, it was tenants looking for 800, 700, 600, 500,000 square feet. And now the activity is in 10, 20, 50, 70. It, it's qualified a bit. I mean, we all know Fulton Market's been on fire. There are statistics that show that's the hottest growing submarket in the country. You've seen that headline. Um, and, and the West Loop has also had pretty good performance. Central Loop has been really decimated by the relocation of the financial tenants. Um, <clears throat> plus, you've got the new towers. Excuse me. So, yeah, there's certainly, you know, new highs for vacancy and trouble downtown, and there's a lot of categories, but there's also these areas that uh, remain really strong. And so you've got investors, if you look at some of the trades, that, are, that really haven't taken any discounts, especially when you're looking at the long-term single-tenant stuff. 
So it, it's a qualified, you know, discussion there. Does anyone in the audience have a question or want to react to any of these basic trends just to set the stage for us? Mr. Parlato from JLL. Yeah. One minute, one minute. <laughs> Uh, what about the term side of the leases between suburban and downtown? I mean, shorter terms on those leases, right? Uh, it's becoming more and more consistent. And is, is that? I, I mean, you want, you want to answer? I I'll answer. I would say we mostly see five-year terms at this point, unless it's a very large tenant. And my add to that would be during COVID, everybody was kicking the can. So you had a huge trend toward shorter-term leases. They weren't sure what they were gonna look like. A lot of companies still don't in terms of what that balance is from the space need versus work at home. Um, if you try to compare downtown versus suburban in that, in that context, the bigger tenants tend to go long-term. And so if you have, you have more larger tenants downtown generally than you do in some of these suburban properties. And so that tends to be a little, a little shorter, a little smaller. But those are the ones that have been coming back to work. You know, that's, that visibility is pretty clear. Well, if I could just jump in from a lending perspective, when we look at lease maturities, we as a bank, we assume nobody's gonna renew, right? So we're trying to figure out what kind of cash flow, you know, is this property gonna support, which would determine the level of proceeds. You know, in the old days, you maybe it was like a 30, 70% or 35, 65, you know, as far as who would renew, who would leave. I mean, 50-50 is, you know, like a good scenario for us. And talk to my credit person, and, you know, you don't even walk into, you know, a committee discussion talking about downtown office. Now, we have some very low leverage, great sponsors, long-term clients, but the underwriting side of, you know, of everything that we're talking about here has really become a challenge. I think there's a big difference, though, between what we're seeing on this investment sales side um, most of the buildings that we're working on right now, the tenants are renewing. Um, some, some are shrinking, some are growing. It's kind of across the board. But we have not seen a great exodus of tenants uh, in most of these buildings. But I find that the, the lenders are definitely, yeah. you know, they're still being very conservative on that. And, and I guess maybe there's just not enough data yet to to prove out what we're actually seeing, but I, I don't feel like it's as negative as, as people are assuming that it's going to be. So <clears throat> some of these things that have happened had to have quite a jarring effect on the sales market, you know, in terms of the actual investment offerings, buildings that are being sold. Can you bring us through, you know, some information on that, Jim? Like, oh, I'm sorry, did you want to continue with these, Alyssa? I mean, these are just some basic stats out of out of our slides you know about suburban um vacancies you know coming down absorption for the is positive for the first time in, in a long time there's obviously no new construction which is great in the suburbs um and and lease rates have have been holding um concessions are going up tremendously but the, the face rates, landlords are holding their face rates. What does that rental rate chart look like in Manhattan or uh, San Francisco? It's a little bit different, isn't it? Kind of well, San Francisco, right, angle. Right. the only one that looks worse than ours, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Chicago has a tough time growing rents because we have so much land to build on. Um, and then on the urban perspective, is there anything else we needed to touch on? I think you... No, there's just, you know, obviously there is construction happening in the CBD. Uh, there's a few buildings that are already under construction that are coming out between now and 2023, but they're predominantly pre-leased. So I think there's a lot of the new construction that's on hold, and we'll see what comes out. 
Okay. So as I was saying, I think there's been was a jarring effect on the investment market in terms of properties being offered. Mm -hmm. And so how does investment brokers like what did you see? Can you give us a summation of, of the Sure, let's maybe can we let's go to the next slide there. There we go. Um, well, first, I want to say thank you for having us and having me as a panelist. I know a lot of you here, so it's always fun to get together and connect the dots and catch up because we don't we haven't had a lot of these, uh, you know, you know, get togethers and, and panel discussions. Uh, our team, just to give you an idea of the perspective here is is a Midwest team. We focus mostly on office. We're doing some life science, some some light industrial now. And so we've had some of that feedback. Um, and, and it's always one of those things like know your audience. So I was talking to Melissa earlier and explaining some of the perspectives we're hearing. She's like, you know, that'll never happen. That won't happen. <laughs> so I know like there's some tenant perspectives and then there's investor perspectives and, and there, there's going to be some difference. So I'm going to qualify the comments that, you know, we'll get to on some of this about what, what people are thinking and whether or not they really make sense to you. That would be good to hear coming back because uh, don't want to have too big of a disconnection. There's always some, we know that. This slide for us is a track, uh, it tracks what happened to our team basically for the amount of business we were doing and what we were seeing in the market. So this reflects transactions that accumulated in the Midwest. So Chicago, which is our backyard, but Cleveland and Indianapolis and Kansas City and so forth. And what happened with COVID, it's, it's pretty intuitive, but there are a couple, a couple of lessons in here that you may not recognize. So. When we marketed a deal and we had a couple in the heart of COVID, the email views went way up. Like everybody was kicking tires. Everybody wanted to see what was out there. Um, we had signed CAs, they were getting the information, but nobody wanted to tour, you know, shocker. And very few people really wanted to bid. So it was so stark that we had all these people looking and a lot of times in our business with our clients, well, how many people, you know, we track the numbers. So how many people signed CAs? You know, how many people did you talk to? How many toured? So you get this many CAs and then this many tours and then this many offers and then you come down to your buyer. So it's kind of a numbers game. So, you know, when we didn't know what was going on, we're like, you know, this is what COVID, you know, well, then you start getting into, you know, no tours and so forth. Um, one comment about that is, as a practice in our process, a lot of times buyers would say, uh, we don't want to tour on the initial bid. We'll tour if we make the best and final. And if you know, that's kind of the typical process. We have offers and then a best and final. We get a smaller group and then we pick a buyer. And, and that kind of makes sense because why come out and tour if you don't think you're in the best and final and it's COVID. But what happens is, especially with office, since the inventory is generally much older, when you tour and you're in the best and final, everybody's expecting your offer to go up, but you see the property and we've got good photographers on most of this stuff. They're like, uh, there's a little bit of capital here and I didn't know, you know. And so one of the, one of the lessons was you, you really do want to get them out early so that the initial bids are qualified well and comparatively, you know, educated and then the best and final and hopefully you're going up and they've built in this capital. That's always one of the things we, we wrestle with. As we get into the later COVID, People were starting to bid more. They could see the light at the end of the tunnel. They still didn't want to tour. Travel was, um, you know, a little bit more restricted. But as we came out of it, everything started to go back to, in terms of the tracking, back to the things that were pretty normal. And we were really pushing people to tour. Some of the bids were coming in. I'll say two things. As we emerged from COVID, the stabilized deals. And you, I know you're a tenant, so you're a tenant in a stabilized property versus maybe a tenant with vacancy. But from a buyer perspective, if you're in a stabilized deal with a long WALT, weighted average lease term, then the lenders like it better because they know they're going to get paid their debt service. The investors liked it because they're paying their investors the cash distributions. And 
they didn't really have to deal with the market risk. Like, there's huge question marks about the velocity of leasing, who's coming back, and to underwrite lease up, I mean, who knows? It's still a challenge, but that was, so the, the deals that were single tenant net lease continued to trade well, and then it emerged where the deals that had pretty good stabilization, longer waltz, continued to trade well. And so this is just kind of some of the metrics that happened during that period. So one of the things that I just said is that we, we had the same experience where we were having trouble getting people to the properties. Right. So we started doing pretty extensive drone videos, both of the interior and the exterior, because there were a lot of people from out of state, and, and we just figured it was highly unlikely we were getting them on an airplane. <laughs> right. So, yeah. But that, this might be a little too early. I think we're gonna, you're going to talk about transaction volume later. Well, first of all, anyone have any questions on these metrics? So can we talk just a minute about what the buyer pool looked like? Let's just pick a stabilized suburban office building. Sure. What was the buyer pool then and now? Did it change? Well, this, this was a comment actually I was going to make when you look at some of these other statistics in terms of appetite for Chicago in our area. And we have a good perspective because we're working in transactions outside of Chicago so we can talk to the investors who are looking here and looking there. Um, the, the institutions in large part have decided, you know, no, no, no more. No more Chicago, no more Cook County. Uh, Midwest is a region, is a laggard to some of the other regions. Um, you know, of course, you hear about Texas, you hear about the Carolinas, Research Triangle, the West. They're healthier from an office perspective. Um, the headlines for us here in Chicago, and, and you can slice and dice them, but the reality is people see them, generally they're real, with the crime, the population, the government, the taxes. Um, so it's created, it's created a circumstance where you'll have companies like Angela Gordon, Angela Gordon, Bentall Greeno, KBS, they've decided strategically we're moving out of office in these regions. Now, our residential, you know, the, this just this product type. Some of the other product types don't have the same story, but for that, they've decided to move out. But there are groups of buyers moving in. And so, you know, who are they? Well, it's private syndicated equity, which is pretty typical from past cycles. Um, Groups that you don't hear about, but they've got you know high net worth or family office investors that come in and, and are backfilling some of this at discounts. So they like the higher yields in relation to what they perceive as a risk. They like the basis play, which of course in relation to new construction costs and everything is really low. So they're moving in. The other trend that we're seeing, and, and uh, uh, like if Melissa had a comment, but in, in the bid pool, the buyer pool, we have a lot of groups now that we've labeled bifurcators. And one of the active buyers here in Chicago has been uh, Opal Holdings. They've looked at a lot of our stuff across the Midwest. And they, among many others, are breaking down uh, into ground lease versus improvements. And they're structuring their finance based on that. And I don't think you guys are doing any of that, but they do have, they'll get a buyer for about half of the purchase price to take out a ground lease, 100 years, like you would traditionally think, price it really with a low cap. And then they get a lender to lend on the remaining building, which is a leasehold loan, and then they effectively structure what's about 85% leverage overall, and then the equity's less. I don't know if it's too much you know, numbers and structure, but it's, the, 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 the message is new structure appearing through multiple groups in our markets and you know, syndicated equity are the groups that are kind of moving into that vacuum. Pension funds? Kind of sleeping no, right no, now. No, pen, no. No, no, no pension. No, funds. no big no. investment. Yeah, right. no, none of that. No you know, the market was in a crash when they started buying anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, and Jim, we actually we've seen that structure just recently on uh, a multifamily deal in Chicago. Oh. It was the first time we've seen it, and there was a lot of discussion. It was definitely one that was a bit out of the box. So, um, 
You know, we as a bank, we like having a mortgage on the land if we can have it, because if not, you're underwriting as part of your expenses what that ground lease payment was. And in some cases, it's a really big number. Right. So the concern is if something happens and we end up taking the property back, you know, you're on the hook for that. It could be a million dollars in your expense, you know, yeah. And we've sold assets with a ground lease even before this whole thing started pre-COVID. And your, your lending pool was down even before this, and your buyer pool goes down because people want the fee. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it, 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 and this will be, look, the sellers love it because they're paying a higher price. But selling these buildings again when you have separation between the ground and the improvement is going to be hard. Well, are they thinking about that exit strategy when they bifurcate? <laughs> are they just I, wanting to I, make I, a deal and make some fees? Uh, one quick second, Melissa, and then we'll, I, I think we were talking about this because who, who's really taking the risk? The equity is roughly 15%, and their returns are high, and so their payback period is pretty short. Yeah. So if the building falls apart, they're probably calculating that they'll have their money back. And so it's probably the lender on the leasehold that's going to take the, the biggest, which is, taking yeah. the biggest yeah. risk. Yeah. The lender is definitely taking the biggest risk. Melissa, do you have a question? Yes, thank you. Sure. Uh, what, am I on? Yeah. Right. What was your reaction and your client's reaction to uh, Brookfield giving back 175 West Jackson? Uh, yeah, well, and Water Tower and some others. I know, but it's kind of a, it's kind of the, a theme that's happening, and it's a Chicago-focused thing. So they're not alone. Uh, the, the distress in downtown Chicago with uh, some of the older commodity buildings has been elevated. Uh, it's been delayed because lenders have been fle flexible in this phase. You had the PPP and stimulus payments. Uh, as I think you mentioned, and maybe you too, our experience as owners, the tenants have paid the rent generally, one way or the other. So it's as these leases roll, the stress goes up. And now that the time is running out, because there is no more stimulus, the tenants are downsizing or they're moving to quality, which is a theme we haven't touched on, but we will. And so the reaction is there's more to come. But you have to think about what's driving that trend, because there's about 7 million square feet of CMBS property that's in distress in social servicing right now. But if you talk to the banks, they're not beefing up their REO departments. So the banks became very conservative in their lending, and they usually have some recourse, if not full recourse, CMBS is typically non-recourse, so it's very easy to give those keys back if the building starts to go south. Yes, I think got a lot, a lot of acronyms going. Maybe back up, and okay. I don't know if everybody's show of hands. Everyone know what CMBS is? REO. We're good. Okay. <laughs> Never mind then. And who, the other, every other person who did raise their hand, the one who did whisper the answer to <laughs> to her or him. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's how about switch gears. Uh, we're switching gears to uh, more of an economic overview. Talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on in the market in terms of growth and lending rates and that kind of thing. Did you want to kick this off or? Okay. Yeah, why don't you just, if you want to just yeah. ease into this, I'm happy to. Yeah, I'm actually going to go to the slide here. So we're talking about, you know, things that, that impact my world on the, the financing side is what's happening in the economy. It, it really, uh, is big picture as we determine our financing terms and and where we want to you know invest our, our funds there. So one thing we look at, of course, is unemployment. Unemployment has dropped uh, to 3.6 in March, held in April. It's actually only gone below 3.6 three times since 1972. Once in uh, 2019, and again twice right before the pandemic in January and February of 20. 
So, you know, the, the market generally thinks unemployment's gonna remain low. I'll tell you from, from first experience, we are desperately trying to hire folks at the bank uh, in commercial real estate that have the underwriting skills and, and lenders. They're just not out there. So it is, it's a very tight market. Um, you know, so, so certainly has been a challenge. Uh, the other thing I'll mention on unemployment is uh, Fitch Ratings is saying that all jobs that were lost during the pandemic are gonna be back uh, uh, by the end of the summer. So certainly I think trends are, are good there. Is this a good thing? I, you know, I, I think so, but in, in ways it could also lead to um, an indicator that there could perhaps be a recession coming. So the low unemployment rate yeah. could be an indicator. Uh, okay, so this is the, I can't see it because I'm blind. This is Green Street slide. This is the Green Street slide. So this captures the prices uh, where commercial real estate transactions are currently being negotiated and contracted. You can see that the price index has been strong. And when you look at the various property types, you know, what I look at when I see this chart is the industrial and the multifamily. You know, they, they kind of continue to be the darlings in the industry, at least for for me selfishly as a lender, right? They're generally viewed as the safer asset types, you know, strong metrics, uh, low vacancy rates. You know, retail and office are right behind, holding steady, you know, stable. We actually had a conversation, I think, about the uh, the negative, uh, what was it, negative, negative uh, four, four percent, four percent right. and how perhaps, bad. you know, that's, bad, right? yeah, that's kind of flat-ish, flat. right? <laughs> so in this market, that's not a bad thing. It just looks flat because of that 53% surge in industrial values. Which, there you go. Which might change too, right? Let's talk about that for one second. I mean, is industrial peaked given recent news by the big gobblers of industrial space? You know, I mean, we're still very actively providing loans for industrial. Now, I'll tell you years ago, whenever we wanted to do something that was a little bit out of the box, we'd write a white paper. And the joke became, all right, well, we want to do non-recourse, we want to do this, we want to go out of market, let's throw in that spec industrial white paper because it'll give them something to say no to because we know they'll never buy off on it. <laughs> well, I think it was like two years ago where we said, okay, no, wait, we really want to do it this time. And, and we did get our credit team to support it because the, the market has been so strong in industrial, very low vacancy rates across many markets, not just Chicagoland. Yeah, so, some good examples is we're seeing a lot of office space go away right. yeah. and being yeah. converted into industrial. Yeah, we're working right. in two deals right now that are going to be teardowns for industrial. Yeah. 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 Where? Uh, we're both in Cook County. Uh, one's further north, one's northwest, but it, they're both infill locations, and that's really what is driving the interest right now. Okay. We, we've been told on industrial... Looking at office, if the site size is eight acres or larger, especially if it's infill, it's a candidate. If you can get yeah. the zoning, get the municipality to buy off on it. That's the hurdle with a lot of them. That's the that's So for your tenants who are in an eight-story or shorter, right. older, Class B office building on eight acres, you might want to think about negotiating yeah. a, a big, fat termination fee or something because they're not going to renew you. Yeah, we've seen a number of requests to convert uh, older office buildings to self-storage. That seems to be something we've seen a number of requests for as well. So the repurposing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a fascinating slide. I mean, you can see all the properties' values trended together back to 07. And they started a split there in 19. And then you can see the surge in industrial and multifamily. But office just hanging, 
hanging in there. And my understanding is I wasn't able to attend ICSC in Vegas this year, but my understanding from people who have returned, you know, retails, the p- people who are really smart at retail can make a lot of money right now, in my opinion, because you really have to be pretty darn smart. But I got to believe there's a lot of value out there. And, and the market's a buzz. People know there's going to be another change in the darlings. So. But that kind of goes to human nature, right? Everybody thought retail was going to be dead. Everybody was going to be buying online. And retail is bouncing back. And I think yeah. that is going to be true for office, too. Everybody, you know, if you read the headlines, office is dead. That's the worst thing in the world. But at the end of the day, we're all social creatures, and we want to be together. And I think corporate culture is important, and, and that eventually those things are going to come back, and people will be back in the office, and office will have a resurgence I think, you know, retail is a good indicator of that. Cool. Uh, you want to talk a little bit maybe about the bank's thoughts on inflation? Or? Yeah, in fact, is this... Oh, wow, well, we happen to have a slide on inflation. I think we do, right? <laughs> so, uh, inflation, inflation drivers, tight labor market, supply chain issues, bottlenecks, you know, sanctions uh, resulting from uh, what's happening in the Ukraine, quantitative easing. You know, it's, it's definitely something that... Uh, you know, we're concerned about. You know, we think that, um, I think inflation was at a four-decade high, like 8.3% in April, was 8.5% in March. Typically, the Fed is targeting the 2% range. So again, you know, it's it's something that we talk about quite a bit. Um, You know, and and we're concerned about. Uh, We're concerned about interest rates. We're concerned about how it's going to impact our our clients, our properties, our, our cash flows. It's the, the funny thing to me is these stats get so blended down because they eliminate certain components of cost. I mean, you can find examples, and I, you know, we price some stuff, some text planking. It's it's more than double, right? And certain food food products are more than double. Uh, if you look at the, you know bushel of corn, it's it's near all time highs. I mean, it's it it's amazing how some of these things are so much higher than what the inflation index would let you think. And it's a little worrisome because when we talk to people, even on interest rates, inflation, what's going on, no one that we're hearing from says, oh, yeah, it's going to stop because of this. Like, the outlook right now is still continued. Murky at best, right? Yeah. Right. And I know it says uh, 18% on on gasoline. I could swear it's got to be more like double that, at least. I mean, with what it costs to fill up my tank. (laughs) Let's uh, flip to the next slide. We've got eight minutes left. Let's, uh, you can even go past the debt markets and hit this one. So let me just talk real quick about interest rates. You know, in this chart, you have the uh, short-term rates, which is the Fed fund rates. So for those of you that have uh, used Prime as an index, that's kind of what we're thinking there. Prime is typically 3% higher than the Fed funds rate, and Fed funds is at 1%. We're expecting that there'll probably be three more rate hikes yet this year. Uh, increasing the Fed fund rates to two and a half. Those of you that borrow on Prime, that's five and a half. Yeah, the long-term rate is the 10-year Treasury. That's the, the green bar that you see. Um, you could see when, uh, when the pandemic started. Um, long-term rates have, they've increased to 2.75% today. It's essentially doubled since the start of the year. So what does this mean in my world as I'm financing office buildings and frankly, any other property? It means that my gosh, it's impossible to number out a deal. Somebody shows me a deal, a cash flow statement today, I look at it, I analyze it, we talk about it internally, I issue a proposal letter, 
And by the time that the client decides to accept the proposal letter, rates are up a quarter point. Guess what? The deal doesn't number out. I can't get you the same loan proceeds. So what does that mean? That means that, A, I'm making the case to my credit people that, don't worry, if rates go up by a quarter point, the rents are going to go up too. Well, they don't believe me, okay? Because they assume that everything's going to stay flat. They assume that every lease that matures, that they're going to leave or downsize space. So... So what does that do? That says, all right, borrower, you have to come up with more equity, right, which is expensive, more expensive than debt. It means they're going to have to come up with reserves, right, because we want to have a bucket of money in case the world blows up, because talk to my credit people, it's all going to blow up, right? <laughs> I'm a salesperson, as you could tell, right? But um, so, so how does this impact the tenant? Well, I, again, I, I believe, and, and you guys can, you know, opine, of course, that you know, rents are going to have to keep pace in order for the landlords to continue paying their debt service. So, you know, will that happen? Will it not? If it doesn't happen, well, guess what? we got a problem, right? And then maybe you're reading more stories about, you know, people giving back buildings. So, so it's, um, it's a concern, you know, with interest rates because it just drives so much on the financing side, which I think really does have a little bit of that waterfall, you know, down to the tenants. We're also looking, just real quick, we're looking at the strength of the tenant. You know, if you have a tenant that, you know, hasn't uh, been able to maintain profitability because there's been a lot going on over the last few years, you know, we're going to be a little bit more nervous about that, that property as well. We might, again, require higher reserves, higher interest rate. Everything just becomes more expensive. It's got a question up front here, right? Yes. Just yell it out there, I would... Sure. So, Heidi, for you mentioned for office, you're assuming a non-renewal for any tenants. Well, not exactly, but yeah, I close. Whatever yeah. your credit Fifty percent. <laughs> so, for industrial, how do you, how does you, you and your credit committee, how do they look at industrial tenants versus office? And you, can you also comment if you're looking at office, what is the minimum weighted average lease term that you want to see on a property to get right. your credit committee comfortable? Right. Good question. I'm not as concerned about industrial, and the reality too is. You know, with industrial, it's so much less expensive to release that space. Unless there's something quirky or unique about, you know, the property, you know, there's there's very little that you really need to do to re-tenant that, whereas office is a much higher, um, what, what my experience is anyway, it, it's a much higher uh, releasing cost. So, you know, when you have that bucket of money set aside for the tenant improvements and lease commissions, it just seems to be a little bit, you know, chunkier with, with office. So not as concerned on industrial. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? For me, I just wanted to go beyond my loan term. But I'd I'd prefer it go beyond the loan term by at least a few years. Otherwise, if there's five years remaining in the lease term and my loan matures in three years or four years, I'm not going to get my friends over at Wintrust to take me out because they're going to be worried and assume that there'll be a non-renewal. Got to worry about the next guy. So that's where recourse, reserves, other, you know, things that could you know, help to supplement the structure coming into play. To the page and look at uh, recent changes on terms and rates. Yeah. There are some couple little stories in here, and if the brokers could share maybe a recent anecdote, and then we'll, we'll uh, move on and talk a little bit about what what the current volatility in the market is, what the implications are. Yeah, and I'll just kick it off real quick. I mean, as a general, you know, note, and, and there are some ranges on here. I think that when you look at the, the, the pre and the post, um, you know, you're finding there's different lending sources, right? You've got the, the banks, the life insurance companies, 
CMBS, debt funds. Debt funds, from what I'm hearing, are really not as active in the market just because they become more expensive and people would rather use the lower interest rates you know, for the banks. You know, I think that a lot of the ranges we have listed here, at least in my world and the banking side, have ticked up to the higher percentage. You know, gone are the days where you're starting with a three-handle on your interest rate. You know, you're approaching five, and you're certainly underwriting at a rate at five, or many banks are actually at six, six and a quarter. Um, and that impacts the loan-to-values, you know, as well. And, and starting to see a little bit more recourse uh, leaking into deals that might have been non-recourse in the past. And, and I think you guys have some examples of deals you've seen like that. Yeah, my comment on this page would be for to tell Heidi that we need you to assume high probability of renewals, lower your rates, yeah. get rid yeah. of the escrows, increase yeah. the proceeds, right? So, so let me ask guys, I just saw um, one of your... Okay. <laughs> think about how much business you do. Right. One of the big shops in town just listed uh, that big deal on Lacey Road. 6,300, Lacey? Weighted average lease term or WALT of 8.8 .8 years. Uh, Lenders, right. equity, who's gonna, everybody's going to like that deal, yeah, right? Everybody's going to like that. Deal. Anybody with real estate allocation. <laughs> sure. Yeah, if it's got, especially with good credit, right? Yeah. So that's it's an easy. extreme. That works. It's, it's these other deals that we're working on that aren't so easy. Right. <laughs> I get some offers, you're saying, <laughs> okay. No, but we, we had a deal right now that we're working, and then the buyer stopped. They put their pencils down because they were just really struggling getting debt, and we were able, and they really wanted non-recourse. And, and we were able to find a couple lenders that will do non-recourse at the loan-to-value that they want. Um, but it's, it's stalling a lot of deals right now. So there's always somebody that, I mean, Heidi, you've always been very disciplined, your bank's always been very disciplined. So, But there's other... There are lenders that'll do a lot of these deals. It's just it takes a lot more to find them now. One last quick thing on our national calls, we're talking about the country. They're attributing about 10 to 20 percent price reduction to debt right now. I can't believe we've exhausted our time. We've got a minute or two left. So I want to just you can leave the slide hanging where it is. Well, let's do our bullet round on our final thoughts, which we all kind of gave them an assignment last night to think about this. But if we go around the panel real quick on our final thoughts, what does tomorrow look like? I'll throw out some subject matter. If you got an answer, let's hear it. If you don't, we'll move to the next one. But return to work. Maybe that 43% or the speed. Any comments on return to work from an office owner's perspective? This, I'll say two things like that, are, that we have in our head that'll help it, that our perspective's expecting. And this is one where I uh, had a discussion with Melissa about it. Um, one is... The managers that we talk to and some of the, the folks do want them in to the office. And we know that there's a certain segment, segment that doesn't. So um, as the big companies come back, as that momentum changes, we're expecting that to help. We also expect that if the balance changes between the job market and the people looking for jobs, where there are more people and less jobs, that that's going to start actually funneling people back into the office. It's pretty clear there's going to be a segment that stays remote, but right now the, the expectation is if this pendulum shifts a little bit, there will definitely be some wins to bring people back in. Any final thoughts from each of you you could give to the audience for I, the walk I would out just the door? Add that I done. think there's going to be landlord winners and losers in that game because there are a lot of tenants now from what we're seeing. They want the landlord to invest the money in the amenity space and give those tenants or, you know, a reason to bring their employees back. So the cost is sort of shifting to the landlord side right now. Good. Anyone else? 
going to your building? I'd say we're, we're bullish on the market. We continue to uh, double down in Chicago. I'm going through a, a big merger right now with a group called Old National, where we'll have dual headquarters in Chicago as well as in Indiana. And uh, we're excited about Chicago. So will the office market come back? It will. My husband just talked me into buying a place in Chicago. Everybody else is leaving. We're going there. <laughs> so, you know, I'm the contrarian from that perspective. But um, we're very bullish on Chicago in general and that the market will, it's going to come back. Okay, well, we'll stick around for a couple of Q&A. Raise your hand if you've got something. But I'd love to thank our panelists, Heidi, Jim, and Alyssa. Let's give them a big round of applause. Um, their, their phone numbers are up on the screen if you want to jot it down, if you have any questions or you want to borrow some money or you want to give a listing or whatever. But um, I saw some people scratching their heads, maybe some disagreeing. Any couple of minutes for the questions? Yes, let me get Jim Mike. So question on new construction um, as opposed to existing buildings, um, Heidi, particularly for you. Are you seeing, compared to three or five years ago um, in your world, are you looking at new construction differently now? Are you weighting it more on the risk, riskier side as opposed to not? I would say in the multifamily sector and the industrial sector, we've actually gotten much more aggressive. So it's not uncommon for us to provide non-recourse financing. Now, it's at a, an appropriate level, leverage level, right? I mean, you're seeing higher equity go in on those non-recourse deals, but we've been very active on the industrial and the multifamily side. For office and retail, we are doing ground-up construction, but there's generally going to be some pre-leasing level that uh, comes along with that. And I would imagine that, uh, you know, certainly in today's times, that pre-leasing level is a little bit higher, probably shooting to uh, minimally cover the uh, debt service at a one-to-one -one level based on your pre-leasing. Anyone else? Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Um, my question is, are you seeing more and more of your investors having and establishing ESG strategies? And if so, how are, is that coming into play on their next investments, especially that E part of the equation? I'll take a start, and then you can comment. Um, you know, ESG is essentially an evolution of lead in some ways. And the, the short answer for the things we've been selling is really no. Uh, and for better or for worse, a lot of the companies have it as a important factor in their decisions, but when it comes down to can you get something or not, especially in the office world, um, you know, this is an investment, it's a physical asset. So, you, you, the investors aren't looking at the companies that are in there about their ESG policies in terms of whether they invest or not in that building. They're looking more at their credit for the revenue stream, and then they'll look at the building. And in that case, maybe you say, is it LEED certified to where maybe it's environmentally you know, more efficient than a building that isn't? Um, but, but then, you know, that is, it's really not a, it's a factor, not a driver. And maybe that's your question, right? It, they'll look at it, and, and they look at it in the context of, will it make me more competitive, more successful in my underwriting? So do they pay more for it? Do they say, I'm going to attribute this much, you know, either lo lower in cap rate, this, you know, more aggressive pricing because of that? We, we don't see that. It's a, if we have a building we're selling and it's LEED certified, we promote it because it's a plus. Don't get me wrong. People appreciate it. They do it. But if you're, if you're saying, hey, is this driving our business right now to a tangible point where we can identify ESG lead 
it, it's been known in our in, in our experience. I don't know if you would. Understand. Yeah, it's hard. Those type of improvements are. There's not a direct correlation to an increase in rents because tenants will pay more for things they can see and feel and you know. And ESG for some maybe downtown and the bigger tenants it, it is a factor, but for most of the suburban assets, I would I would say no. Anyone else? So before we uh, wrap up, I hope everyone has a very safe uh, weekend, a long one indeed, and uh, take a moment this weekend to uh, reflect on and pay tribute to those uh, men and women who gave their lives for our freedom and democracy. Cue the flag. One more round of applause for our wonderful panelists. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.